Reteach, podcast for teachers seeking fresh viewpoints, deeper subject knowledge and diverse thinking. Hello everybody and welcome to the Reteach Geography podcast for teachers seeking fresh viewpoints, deeper subject knowledge and diverse thinking. Visit reteach.org.uk slash subject slash geography for resources to help you offer students broader perspectives on key topics and free to access guides all written by subject experts. I'm your host Kit Marie Rackley and my pronouns are they she. Today I'm joined by someone from the geography teacher community who I know very, very well and I have collaborated with on many occasions. Kate Stockings is head of geography at a London school, an active blogger, sharer of ideas and supports many educational organisations to enhance the teaching of geography. Welcome Kate, it's great to see you again. Hi Kate, thank you. Thanks for having me onto the podcast. To give a bit of context to everybody is uh, the reason why podcasts like this are so, so great is because um, if you're a teacher, you'll be aware. If you're not a teacher, you'll listen to this because you're interested in the whole extended reading and that kind of thing is that teachers are a really close-knit community and we have our own communities. So we have the Geography Teacher Community. And just last week, Kate, we were both at the uh, Geographical Association's annual conference in Sheffield. So how did you find it? Yeah, it was really good. It was um, really good to be back face to face. Last year we had kind of a hybrid one and then this year was the first proper kind of buzzing face to face, I'd say. So it was really Mm. good to be back. Really great to be in Sheffield and have a really high turnout of geographers talking geography. It was very, yeah, buzzing is a, is a great word. And uh, one of the things that we do, folks, is we do talk about, you know, best practice. We share practice. We learn from each other. And one of the things we talked about at the conference was about uh, wider reading. So, uh, and Kate is with us today because uh, one of the things um, that Kate does quite a fair bit is is uh, make some fantastic physical resources and fantastic guides for students and for teachers. And uh, we're going to be talking about something called Top Spec Geography, the Climate Crisis. So then, Kate, so uh, tell us uh, what this is about, what the, what Top Spec Geography is, the, you know, the series, what that is, and specifically um, kind of like what you try to achieve with the uh, Climate Crisis version. So the Top Spec is a series of books by the GA that aim to take A-level students kind of above what they might do in school. So the target market is your A-star, A-grade students, but that's not to say that it's exclusively for them. Um, Hopefully all students would get something from looking at it. But the idea is that it's written by an academic and a teacher. So you have two people that um, work on each book and the academic brings their expertise from um, the university world and then the teacher tries to ensure that that's accessible um, and scaffolded in such a way that A-level students can engage with it. So it's written, as I say, for that kind of higher attaining um, A-level student. But actually, what I found really useful when looking at the books is they're actually really useful for teachers as well, because they often hone in on areas of our subject knowledge that we might need a refresh on or might want to go into more depth on. Um, And so they're a really good use, a really good tool for teachers as well as students. So this series editor, Bob Digby, got in contact and said, would you like to work with Tim Daly on the climate crisis uh, book for Top Spec, which was really exciting. It was a little bit daunting because climate change is obviously very much what everyone's talking about at the moment and what everyone's thinking about. So it felt like quite a big responsibility to be involved with this book in particular, but really exciting as well, because as a teacher, I knew that I needed to keep my climate change subject knowledge bang up to date. I knew that I needed to look into more depth in different areas. So was really excited to take on the project um, at the time. 
there is this collaboration, an increasing collaboration between academics and teachers to do things like this. So uh, for those of you folks who haven't heard of uh, Dr. Tim Daly, Dr. Tim Daly is um, Associate Professor of Physical Geography at the University of Plymouth, I believe. Yeah. So um, so he's got a, a very deep expertise in, in this kind of thing. And I know that he's a very, very strong science communicator as well. So with, with so you both have that overlapping expertise as well, whereas uh, Tim's got that, you know, climate and, and environmental science expertise. You've got that teaching, that communication expertise. And then you've both got that overlap of, of being able to, um, you know, be very effective science communicators. And the other thing I was going to say as well, Kate, which I think is great about top spec ge- geography and top spec series is that quite a few students find the transition between A-level and undergraduate, if that's what they want to do, quite challenging. And this is a fantastic resource for those who really do want to pursue these kind of issues at an undergraduate level. And uh, and I've, I've definitely heard, uh, you know, in some cases that a lot of us said, well, the work that I did with this and through TopSpec has actually allowed me to access what I've done at university a lot more easier. Yeah, and you're absolutely right to kind of mention Tim's expertise because, my goodness, is he an expert? And it was fantastic to work with him. Um, and the GA were wonderful in that they they gave us uh, the topic, which was climate change. Um, I think they possibly mentioned the climate crisis, but they, they gave us the topic of mm. climate change and very much left it to us to say, Kate, you know what's out there. You know what teachers need. Go in whatever direction you want to. So Tim and I very quickly, working with his expertise, but also my knowledge of what resources already existed, we went down this angle of the climate crisis that's what the title of the book is. And we went down this angle of actually, why are we in a climate crisis? There are so many resources out there about the impacts of climate change, about the causes of climate change. Teachers know where to go. You know, the Met Office, the IPCC are doing amazing work on that as well, as well as the big publishers. So that's kind of covered um, for geography teachers. But what we felt or what I felt was a big gap was actually we've known about climate change for over 40 years and why Mm. are we in this position today why is it a climate crisis and although there are many people that could explain that to us i wasn't aware of a resource that actually broke that down and took the time to say here's the history here's the reason why we are in this situation after 20 30 40 years so what we hope and what i think we've done in the book is really focusing on that why are we in a climate crisis we do touch on the drivers of climate change we do have a chapter about that which goes into a lot more detail than a level students will have come across we do touch on impacts and solutions but this isn't kind of a book to teach you the impacts in a huge amount of depth we took a different lens which was that climate crisis angle why are we in it why have we not taken action and so it was really enjoyable to learn about that as much as anything else yeah and the research suggests um many different views but if i give one example from um catherine walker's young young people at crossroads for example that research and many other research from a lot of um environmental charities categorically states that this is what the youngsters want they the youngsters are done with you know the basics causes impacts solutions they want to know the nuances they want to know why we got here they want to focus on the climate justice so which is why i i feel that you know the work that both you and tim done is going to be far more impactful um and allows for a a whole range of approaches so you're 
you know they're not siloed into just looking at the you know the meteorological climatological kind of impacts and, and things like that but they if they want to go down the justice route they can if they want to go down the historical route they can if they want to go down uh you know things to do with migration resilience climate resilience they can go down that route yeah we, so it's very important we kind of you know unfortunately there wasn't infinite space in the book so there wasn't space to do the justice and element that we would have liked to do but what we were able to do with the lens that we decided to take was we were able to where we did talk about impacts and possible solutions we did that through a really synoptic um viewpoint so again using my knowledge of a-level geography tried to make sure that we actually drew out those links to the other elements of geography that they learn about in that A-level. So like one Mm -hmm. example, in chapter four, where we're talking about the impacts of climate change, we talk about it through a risk management approach, which our our students will know about from tectonics, but they probably are highly likely to have kind of siloed that into in tectonics, I learned about risk management and risk management approach of vulnerability and hazards and risk. But have they actually thought about climate change in that way? And we kind of drew a synoptic link there and got them thinking in a slightly different way. In chapter five, where we talk about the complexity of the climate crisis, and we talked about the Kuznets curve and we linked that to globalization. And we said, actually, have you thought about when you're looking at emissions and when you're thinking about whether emissions have increased or decreased, have you actually thought about the fact that China has imported many Western emissions? And have you considered that link between globalization, which we know you've done in detail in A-level geography, but have you linked that to climate change? Um, And hopefully teachers would agree that we do that quite well in the book, that getting them to think Mm. about climate change and how it links to all those different areas rather than just climate change is a thing I learn about in this topic. And that's that. Yeah. So uh, on the Reteach website, your book appears on the uh, list written by Catherine Owing, um, How a Systems Approach Can Help Us Understand Climate Change. And she writes this, top spec geography books from the Geographical Association are aimed at A-level students, but are also useful reading for teachers who want to improve their subject knowledge. And that's absolutely key. This book is co-authored by the Deputy Director of the Sustainable Earth Institute and a teacher and head of geography at an 18, 11 to 18 comprehensive school. While Daly brings his climate science expertise, Stockings ensures that this is clear communicated in a way that is useful to A-level students. And as in A-level specification, this book takes a systems approach to the climate emergency, looking at how the carbon cycle changes over time and the impacts that these have developing students' understanding of this complex topic. So um, as you can see, Catherine's really, really um, nailed, you know, kind of like what you've tried to tried to achieve there. And uh, that's how it appears on the reteach recommended list. Um, how, do you have any comments to what Catherine has said there? No, amazing. Thanks, Catherine. <laughs> Thanks for summing Excellent. it up uh, in that way. Because, yeah, systems thinking, I think, is is something we still need to tap into as teachers. I think it's implicit within the specifications. I think it's in implicit for many of us. But for many geography teachers, it's not explicit mm-hmm. in what we do. Um, and there are many schools out there that probably still don't really... Uh, think about that systems thinking approach um, and so we've definitely got some work to do there I think but that's uh, that's what makes it all exciting <laughs> absolutely yeah question for you then so you 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 visit a, a different school <laughs> rather than your own to give a talk right and you notice your your book in the staff library or the student library or both what do you think it is about your book and Tim's book that might be compelling to students and teachers i know you've you've alluded that to already but specific and you've already mentioned about you know thinking about how emissions work what do you reckon would be the most compelling thing about the book 
for the students or the teachers? I think, again, it comes back to the approach we chose to take about just making it a bit different. Um, and the chances are you pick up this book, you open it and you're like, oh, this is new. Like I know some of this, but the vast majority of this I don't know, um, which is slightly different to a lot of climate change or textbooks that discuss climate change where you pick it up and you're kind of like, yeah, I know most of this. There might be the odd sentence that introduces some new content, but the vast majority of it is kind of going over old ground. That's not, of course, talking about um, published books about climate change. I'm talking about textbooks and specific kind of geography, um, education resources. So when you pick up and open it, you know, we do unashamedly get quite nitty gritty quite quickly. Well, the whole thing is very nitty gritty about the climate crisis. So at the beginning, we don't shy away from talking about like UN climate change um, conventions, UN climate change frameworks, the IPCC reports in a lot of nitty gritty detail. That's the only way I could kind of sum up those opening chapters. They really are like, whoa. This is telling me the history. Um, But if you want to understand why we're in the position we're in in 2023, Tim and I believe that you need to read that and you need to know what what has, has happened to get us to this point. So I think it's, I hope it's compelling for that reason that we are looking at why we got to this point and introducing you to why we got to this point in a way that I haven't seen done before. So kind of chapter one and chapter two really focus around these four main reasons as to why it's taken us 30 years, over 30 years to get to our level of understanding. And this for me, if we're talking about teachers improving their subject knowledge, this was new ground for me. I suppose I did know a little bit about the four reasons, but I didn't know, I certainly didn't know the depth and probably wouldn't have been able to explain them to to students. So we talk about the four reasons being, you know, number one, we had to work out whether or not the late 20th century was unusual or not. So we had to work out if the warming was unusual. That took a lot longer than you might imagine and is a lot more complex than perhaps, you know, everyday people uh, imagine. Number two, we had to use the models to look at causes of climate change. And that is inherently linked to number three, which is modeling uncertainty and working with that to work out what we know and what we don't know. And then number four is the really interesting one for me as a kind of uh, more human geography teacher is actually the procrastination, the procrastination that we have, uh, that we have had as a result of things like the global financial crisis in 2008 and how that has impacted this inaction over the last 30, 40 years. So in terms of the main takeaway, the main thing that makes it compelling, I think it's that. I think it's that discussion of why are we in this situation, looking at those four reasons in depth. Yeah, and as someone who's who's got a lot of expertise and training and knowledge about climate science and working with climatologists and having a climate change background myself that number three it brings me so much joy and relief that that is being communicated and that is what is meant by climate uncertainty what is meant by modeling uncertainty what is meant by a range of different possible scenarios how do you generate those why are they important you know because that is severely miscommunicated you know, by people who don't have that knowledge and sometimes not, not by nefarious purposes, you know, people hear the word uncertainty and then they go ahead and they go, well, okay, the climate scientists are still not sure about what's going on. Whereas from a scientific modeling uh, projection point of view, 
it's actually critical and good science. So it brings me a lot of joy as, as someone with a climate science background that you 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 really do. Fo- so for me, the question is, and follow up is, the question that I was going to ask you is like, what would they? What would be the thing that the students must take away if they were to take away one thing? For me, it would be how to understand what is meant by scientific uncertainty. So what about for you? Well, so I did cheat on this one. I did write down an answer. <laughs> I wrote down an answer to this one because I was like, there is no way I want to uh, blabber on rather than a one-liner. So the one-liner <laughs> that I've written down, if there's one thing I'd like teachers um, and students to take away, it's this. So we can explain why it took us over 30 years to reach the level of understanding that we now have. Some people may say that elements of that is making excuses for inaction and procrastination cannot be excused, but that's another discussion. What is the situation now, though, is that we do have that understanding. In 2023, we do understand what has happened and why. And so now we have to take action and it has to be done now. The kind of overall message is we we have the understanding. So our governments, our TNCs, our communities need to take action and we need to do it now. Yeah, perfect. And uh, that was my that was my. It's not one line; it's three lines. Right. But that was my three line <laughs> type answer to ensure that I got the key takeaway. Uh, yeah, summarized. Perfect. And scientists do not use terms like unequivocal unless they have the scientific data to back it up. That is a powerful word in science. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's what um, unequivocal and then your three lines would be the perfect tagline, I think. <laughs> we'll get it printed. We'll get it printed. Just a <laughs> On a t-shirt classroom. or something. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, um, you, we obviously know you've become a geography teacher, but, but not just a geography teacher, but someone who's been exceptionally motivated and inspired to kind of give so much back to the geography teach community by the work that you do. So when you were in school or college, were there any particular books or written material that inspired you maybe A, to become a teacher or maybe even think, you know what, if I ever get the chance, I'd love to do this myself or I'd love to kind of kind of enhance this text that I see and then open it up to the world. Is that? And can you recall anything like that when you were in your younger days? Sort of, but to be honest, so my A-levels were in geography, biology, and economics, oh, nice. which is like a dream combination. <laughs> like, oh, I just loved them and, and loved that combination. It was just so great. But I remember really clearly at the beginning of sixth form being told about the importance of extra reading and being given like reading lists and all this stuff. And I did try, like I did get a couple of books out from the library, but I very quickly struggled to connect what I was being told to read with what we were actually doing. And I think perhaps the teachers, and they were all fantastic teachers, but perhaps they didn't quite make it kind of clear, like why were we being told to do that? It felt so distinct from what we were doing in class. So I wasn't very good at extra reading um, at school. And actually, although I read a huge amount now, um, I actually had a good few years off of reading. Like when I was doing my A-levels and at university, I did not read for pleasure. Um, ju- oh, when I say pleasure, obviously like non-fiction geography books as well. Um, just because those that period of your life, you have to do so much reading anyway that to sit in the evening or to sit on the train and voluntarily read just kind of felt, you know, alien. And so there was a big period where I actually didn't read. And I'm probably not a model example of extra reading. But the one exception would be that it was during my A-levels that I became a reader of The Economist. 
um, and I've stuck with that ever since. Um, I know obviously it has its flaws. I know there were flaws of, of kind of being wedded to one source of information. But for me, it is my kind of starting point that I use to then explore other things. And um, so I am a very loyal reader of The Economist um, for my subject knowledge. I find it fantastic. I find it really, really good to keep me up to date, particularly when we're thinking about the teachers and um, teaching of superpowers and migration, identity, sovereignty and globalization, actually. Let's chuck that one in there as well. And um, so that started that started during my A-levels. So um, that was probably the limit of my reading when I was at school although that's not a bad limit because there's a huge amount in it uh, but that's where that's where my um my loyalty to the economist started and um, and I've stuck with it ever since and find it incredibly useful so yeah a bit of a mixed answer I'm, I'm certainly not a model example of extra reading when I was at school well, it's, it's equally valid though because you know it's we can't expect everybody to be a you know to go into that wider extended reading simply you know most of us just don't simply have the time um okay. so that's why you know you mentioned the publication like the economist or you've got you know national geographic magazine for example you know and they can be a more accessible way because you can get an issue and then you can focus on only one single article that may only take you 15 20 minutes to read so there are ways of gaining that you know, extra reading without having um, to rely on reading maybe a whole text, a whole book or something. So Yeah, and what I've, what I've tried to do over the last few years as well, which I don't remember doing at school, but I'm happy to be corrected by any of my teachers. <laughs> but I don't remember that. I don't remember any gentle exposure to academic papers. Um, and so I remember arriving at university and being like, what is this? Yeah, like you're yeah. talking about Harvard referencing, you're talking about academic papers, you're talking about journals and you're using this word journal and no one's actually sat me down and told me what a journalist so you kind of have to pick it up as you go along um, and I know universities have done a lot of work over the last decade it kills me to call it a decade but it is a decade um, I know universities have done a lot of work over the last decade to kind of correct some of that and make sure that when um, undergrads arrive they are kind of gently taken through the mechanics of academic reading but I don't remember any of that happening and um, so what I'm really trying to do now, actually like tweeted one only yesterday, is find high quality open access papers yes. that can be a really gentle introduction. And so they might not be the best paper about glacial science. But the one I found yesterday was a really gentle introduction to the value of glaciers for food security, water security, energy security. And I just looked at it and thought, my goodness, this is fantastic to introduce students to uh, journals and to academic writing. And that's what I'm trying to do. And it's it's really difficult because you can't do it too often yeah. because don't you simply don't have the time. So I cannot... I cannot dissect an academic paper with our A-level students once a week. We just don't have the time. We probably can't even do it once a half term, yeah. which is the sad reality. So we're talking kind of once a term, but then if we can do that once a term, that's six times over their A-levels that we would really slowly, and when I, I say slowly, because I think it takes about an hour to kind of do oh, in crikey, the way that yeah. I like to do. Um, and so you've just got that constant balance between wanting to do it and absolutely seeing the value and then just the curriculum time challenges that we obviously know um, exist so well. But that's kind of where I've been up to with extra reading um, most recently and just final thing on kind of academic papers 
for me, having only worked in comprehensives, I don't think it's the sort of thing they can do at home, which is part of the part of the challenge. Yeah. Is that I can't say to them, take this academic paper and read it at home because they won't get from it what we think they'll get from it. I, I just I just don't think they will. And um, because they are so they're so different mm. and they're so challenging. Um, and so then it does have to be to something that you do in class and you dissect and and you give an hour at least over to. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with everything you say. And and for me, what I did when I was teaching was, you, you know, take out phrases, passages, or maybe if, if you can push it, maybe just the abstract and then do it as a flipped piece of homework and bring it in and, you know, and try and use it that way. But it, it is such a, such a, such a challenge. But on the same, on the same note, um, so... You, you mentioned there about you have tried to use some academic journals, maybe with Glacier, stuff like that. Have you got any other examples maybe where you've tried to use further reading within your lessons? You know, maybe have you ever tried to drop in a, a paragraph or a page from a fiction book within your teaching or any other extended source? Yeah. Yeah, it's something I've done a lot since 2020 because it was a side effect of um, having time to read during lockdown one. Right, yeah. And I know that wasn't the case for everybody and um, everyone had very different circumstances. But for me personally, I did a huge amount of reading in that first lockdown and had this vast number of books that I'd collected and never read. <laughs> yeah. um, so I just systematically worked my way through them and absolutely loved it. And it's what kind of kick-started my passion for reading again, having had those years off. Uh, previously when at university so I've continued it since really loved it but it was due to lockdown one that I kind of started and what I found as you know and as many geographers know is you pick up a book and very quickly you're like my goodness I need to use this in lesson yeah. like grab the highlighter grab the pencil um, and then you start kind of highlighting and you start picking out those extracts that you're going to use in your lessons um and there are so many examples of where I've done that. So many examples of where I've used quotes from books uh, to kind of depersonalize it and take it away from my opinion and my bias and my privilege, whatever, depending on what context and um, topic you're talking about, you know, pick the applicable uh, term I just used. <laughs> but using a quote to um, to empower your lesson. So quotes from Greta Thunberg, for example, um, quotes from Tim Marshall, Prisoners of Geography, all loads of different examples, but always talking to the students about like, what is this person saying? What is their background? What is their um, lens through which they're saying this? And how can we discuss that? So lots of quotes in lessons now, lots of extracts. Uh, so again, coming back to prisoners of geography, I'm thinking about something like contested borders when you teach migration identity sovereignty, mm. that whole section about um, Israel-Palestine, about the Kurds and Kurdish kind of uh, issues, all of that stuff is actually so helpful to say, right, here's a chapter of somebody who's written about it. Here's another source as well, but let's have this as our starting point. Um, has just been really useful and really useful for workload as well, just yeah. to take the pressure away from me about um, having to script it for myself, et cetera, et cetera. So done a lot of that and then a couple of examples of structuring a whole scheme of work around a piece of text. But um, that for me is very limited because there are so few books out there that are appropriate to do that yeah. with. So one thing, and I, I know you agree with me on this, but one thing I got, I think we've got to be really careful of as geographers is that we don't just see these books and think, amazing, I'm going to use it for a key stage three scheme of work yep. because it was such a good book. Yes, it was such a good book. I don't disagree, but is it appropriate to structure a scheme of work around it? Because if the book achieves breadth without depth, 
is it appropriate to use that at key stage three? Because it's the risk that you're just doing so much prep that they're not actually getting exposed mm. to really powerful geography. Because if we do that, we're falling into misconceptions, we're falling into single stories, we're falling into all the dangers that we know about. And I think as literature becomes really embedded into our geography practice, as it rightly should, we have just got to be really careful of these lethal mutations around using books and around using book extracts because I'm starting to see some of it kind of creep in uh, in the online Twitter world and um, I think we need to have a discussion about it. Mm. Yeah, there's an, um, the example I gave at the conference for our, for our um, talk was using uh, a descriptive passage from Cold by Bill Strever, you know, talking about the landscape, the, the glacial landscape and the processes that's put in a very, very kind of like lyrical prosy way. But then the following, then I, I said, well, what I then did is that that was the plenary from the last lesson for the starter activity for the next lesson. I used um, the diagram and a t- diagram from Horrible Geography, Freaky Peaks. So I got two different sources no. information there, you know, um, rather than just relying on one or even, you know, as you just say, the entire book. Yeah. And, uh, and I will mention one. I mean, I, perhaps maybe you were holding back, but I, I don't mind mentioning it. Um, <laughs> You're going to be braver than me, Kit. Go on. You'll no, be no. It's so, so for example, like, um, you know, Factfulness by, by Hans Rosling and, and those folk. And there is so many fantastic good messages, but to formulate a whole scheme of work about that can be quite dangerous. Um, unless you take the time and you make sure that you 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 go for it with a critical lens. I mean, the messages that about how you should think are valid from that, but you've got to also look at the alternative point of view. And okay, and again, where's the bias in it? It is written from a Western professor's and his family's, you know, a white colonial point of view. So um, all of that has got to be taken with a bit of nuance. And it is challenging because, as you said yourself, Kate, we've only got so much amount of time. Um, but this is where conversations really, really help and and seeing if there's anybody who has ri- who's read the same things or written about the same to- topic coming from a different lens. And I always used to say, if you haven't got time to read something, find a small group of people who have read it who can point you to certain passages or certain counter arguments or something like that. So and that's why community and collaboration is so, so important. Well. Yeah, definitely. Right. I'm going to ask you one last question then before we wrap up. So, um, and I really want to know this one because I work in the same area and I, I, I battle with this myself and I've, I've, I'll read it out word first. So what drives you to contribute generating content for textbooks and lesson resources, given that we live in the age of the internet and digital sharing and we're saturated with so much information because I'm still battling with that myself. <laughs> yeah. Oh God. It's a really interesting question. Um, but, I suppose the answer is because we're saturated with so much information, right? So because there is so much out there and there's so much information overload, but not just the information, you know, resources, there is an infinite number of places to turn to, to get geography resources, but quality and quality assurance remains a massive thing. Mm. So I think thinking about information, like, yes, there is so much out there. And with the rise of kind of chat GPT and uh, AI, there's going to be even more. We still need people to take the time and to take the effort to distill that information, to make it workable and to make it usable, particularly in the geography classroom, because we have been through the eras of geography being weakened and geography yeah. being taught in a way where it probably wasn't actually very good geography and so if we don't have geographers who are passionate about 
sifting through and thinking actually this is really good to use and this is not and then we're going to fall into that trap again of geography for geography's sake rather than really powerful geography and it's really difficult because i know i think you're similar to me but correct me if i'm wrong but we tend not to put stuff out there that we don't agree with. So I I would say I've never kind of blogged and said, don't use this just because you are then putting yourself mm. out there for kind of attack. But that is part of it, isn't it? Is that we see the information and think, oh, I'm not going to use that for this reason. And I'm not going to use that resource for this reason. Um, but are we sharing that thinking and sharing that kind of uh, thoughts around what we should be using and what, what we shouldn't be using. So I think even in the age of saturation with information, there is definitely always going to be space for people who go through it and think this is how to use this and this is why we should use it. Um, and I, I really enjoy doing that. As I know you do, as I know many, many do, it's actually really enjoyable to look at those extracts and look at those resources mm. and think actually this is going to be really useful for this reason. Um, and the last thing kind of that always come up is people always comes up is people always say, but how do you get the time? How yeah. do you get the time yes. amongst the madness of comprehensive teaching to do what you do? And for me, the answer is, but it keeps me sane, like amongst <laughs> my new shy of school life. Um, which for me is slightly different now because I'm doing a slightly different role as trust lead, but still teaching, still marking, still moderating, etc. Um, but amongst the kind of my new shy of you know when you've got a form group when you're doing phone calls home about behavior and about uniform and you're filling in data and you're doing all this stuff actually for me going back to the geography and going back to actually this is the subject that i love and this is the subject i love teaching has always for the last eight years just kept me sane Mm. and kept me kind of passionate about what we do and why so yes of course it is work and of course sometimes that involves working in the evenings sometimes during the holidays not very often slash incredibly rarely but sometimes i will engage with geography um during non-work hours but that is what has kept me kind of as passionate about doing it and as i remain so if anyone's sitting there thinking i'd love to do all this i'd love to start reading the books i'd love to get involved my kind of advice is we'll give it a try and give it a try and yes it does take time but give it a try and you might find that actually the time you're putting into it is giving you a spring in your step and inspiring and making you kind of buzzed about doing the other stuff and and so therefore it becomes completely worth it and it becomes actually really valuable into all of your work uh, rather than seeing it as an add-on yep doing things like this has a given me so much more knowledge and understanding about geography and checking my blind spots it's helped me to check my privilege and you're right it's kept me sane it's kept me sane and i i do it through the love of the subject as well as anything else and uh and yeah so i i I echo everything that you you just said there kate and then going back to a previous point you made you know what there is a new up and coming thing and maybe this is for the next generation of geographers rather than folks like you myself and me is that we apparently we're entering the age of the de-influencer so folks if you want to know what we don't we've run out of time now if you want to know what i'm talking about this is a thing now so maybe the next generation of uh, of people who do the kind of work that myself and kate does maybe you will start seeing a little bit more of de-influencing going out there which is not necessarily a bad thing yeah although i don't <laughs> like this reference to uh, the next generation kit it makes us sound well, like, it makes it sound like our time is limited we're only just getting our- going 
I know, I know. Well, I I feel like I've still got a lot of legs in me, so uh, you know, perhaps perhaps I'm self-projecting, I don't know, but <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um as always, it's been an absolute delight to talk to you and and thank you so much for uh, coming on the Reteach podcasts to give that perspective and and it's great when we've got authors who are also teachers to come on this podcast as well because it really does kind of like bring everything together. So, it's been absolutely delightful to have you on and to speak to you again. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Kit. Um, I need to engage with the Reteach website some more and have a look at the great work you guys are doing. Uh, but it's been great to learn about it in prep for this podcast and hopefully be useful to one or two teachers or more. Thank you so much. So, folks, this uh, podcast was produced for Reteach. The producer is Michael Trasinski. Uh, visit reteach.org.uk slash subject slash geography for resources to help you offer students broader perspectives on key topics and free to access guides, all written by subject experts like Kate. I am Kit Marie and thank you very much for joining us. Music.